Would you turn with me to the second chapter of Acts? We want to continue our studies in Luke's history of the early church and look today at an event that uh, without question is one of the great events in history. Nothing quite like it. Uh, perhaps the greatest day in history uh, is the day of our Lord's resurrection. But uh, this uh, is a close second, this event that took place on the day of Pentecost. And significantly enough, it took place not, uh, at least initially, not in a very public place, but in a back room. Let's begin reading with the first verse of chapter 2, Acts 2. And when the day of Pentecost had come, they were all together in one place, and suddenly there came from heaven a noise like a violent rushing wind, and it filled the whole house where they were sitting. And there appeared to them tongues as of fire distributing themselves, and they rested on each one of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak with other tongues as the Spirit was giving them utterance. Now there were Jews living in Jerusalem, devout men from every nation under heaven. And when the sound occurred, the multitude came together and were bewildered because they were each one hearing them speak in his own language. And they were amazed and marveled, saying, Why are not all these who are speaking Galileans? And how is it that we each hear them in our own language to which we were born, Parthians and Medes and Elamites and residents of Mesopotamia, Judea and Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Phrygia and Pamphylia, Egypt and the districts of Libya around Cyrene, and visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabs, we hear them in our own tongues speaking of the mighty deeds of God. And they continued in amazement, in great perplexity, saying to one another, What does this mean? And others were mocking and saying, They are full of sweet wine. This is a, uh, a passage that's widely understood. There are probably more strange beliefs that have sprung out of this uh, chapter than any other chapter in the New Testament. And so it's one that we need to understand. And uh, perhaps the first step is to understand clearly the details, what actually happened on that uh, historic day. The, um, the city of Jerusalem was crowded with pilgrims. This was the day of Pentecost, we're told. This was a, a feast day, one of, uh, originally one of the obligatory pilgrimages uh, by which all men in, in Israel were bound. And uh, they gathered uh, on this day around the temple in order to celebrate a sacrifice and a feast. It was called Pentecost because this particular feast occurred on the 50th day after Passover. Our word Pentecost is simply a, a transliteration, an anglicized form of the uh, Greek word, the Greek ordinal, 50th. So on the 50th day after the day of Pentecost, this uh, feast took place. The Jews also referred to it as the Feast of Weeks because it was seven weeks from Passover or a week of weeks. And they also referred to it as the uh, Feast of First Fruits because this was the day that they presented the tithe of their wheat harvest. Uh, they brought the first, uh, the 10% uh, off of the top of their wheat harvest and brought it to the, uh, the temple as an offering. And by some coincidence, this is the day of Pentecost. If you looked on your, on your calendar this morning, it just worked out uh, to be that this is Pentecost. And as Luke tells us, there were Jews from all over the uh, Roman Empire gathered in Jerusalem, probably a million or more. We're told by early historians that over 200,000 Jews could meet in the temple at one time. So they were there in, in large numbers, and Luke tells us in this roll call in verses 9 and 10 and 11 where they came from. 
There were Parthians, Medes, Elamites, residents of Mesopotamia. These are folks that lived off to the east of Palestine in the Tigris-Euphrates Valley. These were um, uh, the survivors of the deportation, a series of deportations, first by the Assyrians and then the Babylonians that took uh, Jews off to the east into Mesopotamia. Then there were Judeans, that is, people who lived in Syria and Palestine. There were those from Cappadocia, Pontus, Asia, Phrygia, and Pamphylia. If you're impressed by how well I can pronounce those words, it's because I practiced for hours to get them. Uh, that's, uh, those were people who lived in what today is Turkey in Asia Minor, and Egypt and districts of Libya around Cyrene, of course, would be North Africa, and then visitors from Rome, the uh, capital of the Roman Empire, both Jews and proselytes. These proselytes would be Gentiles who had converted to Judaism and Cretans and Arabs, people from the island of Crete and Arabs who lived in the uh, Arabian Peninsula. These were all gathered at Jerusalem for this, uh, this historic occasion. The 120 with the 12 apostles were in the upper room. It's a little difficult to know exactly where they were, but I take it that they were gathered in the upper room. It's unlikely that they would be in the temple area because uh, their lives were, uh, had been threatened. They were known associates of Jesus. And uh, we're also told in chapter 1 that it was their custom to meet in the upper room. And we're also told in chapter 2 that this event occurred in the house. That, that could refer to a, one of the compartments in, in Solomon's porch, which was in the temple, but it's more likely that they were in the upper room. They were gathered there studying the scriptures and praying and fellowshipping together and waiting as the Lord had commanded when something happened. First, they heard something. It was uh, like a wind, a cyclone that came through the house. Now, we're not told that they saw anything. It didn't blow paper around the room. It didn't blow their hats off if they were wearing them. Uh, it simply sounded like a, a violent, rushing wind, as Luke puts it. It must have sounded like the wind that came through Boise Wednesday morning. Uh, the uh, shutters in our bedroom slammed and the door slammed, and I just jumped right straight out of bed. I didn't know what had happened. It was that, that sort of thing. They heard something first, and then they saw something, uh, a flame entered the room, and then it divided and subdivided so that uh, eventually there was a small tongue of flame resting over the head of every individual in the room. And it's important to note the details. No one was left out. No one was excluded. Everyone in that room, all of the 120, the 12 apostles, the women, Mary, the mother of Jesus, and his brothers and the others, each had a small flame over his head, it seemed to rest over him. Then we're told they experienced something. They experienced the filling of the Spirit. Now, by experience, I don't mean they felt anything, but something happened to them. They were filled with the Spirit. And this was in accordance with Jesus' command, or Jesus' promise. He had said to the disciples when they were in the upper room formerly during the, uh, uh, prior to the time that he went to the cross, he had promised them that he would come again. He said, I am with you. I will be in you. He was coming to indwell them. And this was the fulfillment of that, that great promise, that he would come and fill them and flood their humanity, and he would again live in them. He would not be visible to them as he had been during the, the years of his incarnation, but he would be just as real in dwelling every one of, of those who put their trust in him. Now, that's the great thing that happened on Pentecost. 
And then we're told they began to speak in other languages. And I say languages rather than tongues because that's exactly what, it, what occurred. Now, this was not uh, an ecstatic utterance. They didn't speak in the language of angels. They began to speak in known foreign languages. Now, there are a number of reasons why that we know that's so. The first is that uh, the term that's used for other languages here, which unfortunately is the term that, that the King James translates strange tongues, both here and in 1 Corinthians 14, means other languages. It doesn't mean a strange tongue in the sense that it's not known anywhere on the earth. It was a known foreign language that followed rules, normal rules of syntax and grammar and could be, uh, could be understood by people who spoke that, that language. And secondly, we know it's a known foreign language because uh, the people who heard the sound, that is the sound of this tongue, these languages, said, we hear them speaking our dialects. And then so there will be no doubt the dialects are mentioned, people from the east and the north and the south and the west, all over the Roman Empire, so that we can, can know this was a known foreign language. Now, what happened apparently is that the disciples tumbled out of the upper room, out into the streets, and they began to walk through the streets speaking in these foreign languages. And they attracted attention all over town, as they would today in, in downtown Boise. If 120 people were walking through the streets of the city, speaking in a foreign language, a language which people in, the, in that town could recognize and understand, they would attract attention, and so people began to gather from all over. And uh, we're told in verse 7, they were amazed and marveled, saying, Why are not all these who are speaking Galileans? That's true that almost all of the 120 were from, from up north. They'd come down with Jesus uh, for the crucifixion. They'd accompanied him, and most of them were from the north. Certainly all the disciples were, and his mother, his brothers, and others. And uh, it's generally assumed that Galilean spoke with a, a sort of soft burr, like the, like the Irish. And uh, what they heard was a group of people speaking a foreign language flawlessly, but speaking it with the accent of a Galilean. Uh, much like uh, Lee Ivans, uh, who uh, speaks flawless English but with that lovely Scandinavian accent. It was that sort of thing. They recognized these were, these were Galileans. Now, people in those days could uh, usually speak two languages. They were bilingual, and they might have known three. They would know their mother tongue, which in the case of these disciples would be Aramaic, and they would know uh, Greek because that was the language of commerce, and they might know Latin, but that's about the extent of it. But here there were people who were speaking in, in many different languages. They had never received any training in these languages, and yet they were fluent. And that's what was so amazing. The uh, Greek word actually means they were outside of themselves. It, the, the idiom today would be they blew, it blew their minds. They just couldn't handle it. How could this be? And uh, in verse 8, uh, he says, How is... Luke records that they said, How is it that we hear them in our own language to which we were born? In verse 11, We hear them in our own tongues speaking of the mighty deeds of God. 
Now, the word here that's translated mighty deeds is a word that's used all through the Old Testament in the Greek translation of the Old Testament scriptures for God's great saving acts. Uh, whenever the prophets speak of God's deliverance from Egypt, for example, or the crossing of the Red Sea or the crossing of the Jordan, the uh, Passover, or any of these great events in Israel's redemptive history, this was the term that was used. In other words, when the disciples tumbled out of that upper room and they began to speak in other tongues, they were not merely praising God. They were preaching. They were evangelizing. They were talking about the mighty works of God, the mighty saving acts of, of God, perhaps uh, recounting the story of Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection in his present session. In other words, they were evangelizing in another language. And that's what amazed the people. Now, we're told in verses 12 and 13 that the reaction was divided. Some said, what, uh, what does all this mean? And others said, ah, they're just, they're just drunk. You always get those, uh, those sorts of reactions from people when they encounter something that they don't understand. Some want to know more about it. Others simply have closed minds, and they uh, discount the phenomenon. And, th and that's what occurred on this occasion. So Peter preaches his first sermon. What a change in Peter from what we know of him as, as uh, an apostle in his early days. We're told in verse 14 that Peter, taking his stand with the eleven, raised his voice and declared to them, and then there begins his uh, message. I used to have a homiletics prof who told me that this, that verse 14 uh, and following is a good pattern for preachers. Uh, he said, Peter uh, stood up, and he spoke up, and then he shut up. And uh, probably a great deal of truth in it. Very short sermon. Three-part uh, sermon, as all good sermons are. He begins with an explanation of the phenomenon that, uh, about which they had asked, and then a declaration of the gospel, the good news about Jesus Christ follows, and then finally an application to his hearers. Now, we don't have time this morning to go through the entire message, but uh, we will look at the first section, his explanation of what had occurred. Peter says in verse 14, Men of Judea, that is, you Jews, and all you who live in Jerusalem, let this be known to you and give heed to my words, for these men are not drunk, as you suppose, for it is only the third hour of the day. So he begins with a rebuttal. These men are not drunk. It's too early in the morning to be drunk. It's only 9 o'clock. You can discount that uh, explanation. There must be another. This is that, he says. This is what was spoken by the prophet Joel. You want an explanation for it? The Old Testament gives us that explanation. This is what Joel predicted. Now, Joel was an 8th century prophet, we think. We don't know much about him. He doesn't refer to any kings or events that we can date, but uh, it's as good a guess as any that he lived during the 8th century. It was probably uh, roughly a contemporary of Isaiah, some of the other 8th century prophets. And uh, he prophesied at a time when Israel, the northern kingdom of Israel, was in, uh, in terrible condition spiritually. It, it wasn't long after this that they went into captivity. And he begins his book by referring to an event that had taken place in Israel just prior to the writing of the prophecy of Joel. There had been a, uh, a locust plague. This is the sort of thing that happens frequently in the Near East. 
And uh, the locusts had gnawed their way through the countryside and had literally devastated the northern kingdom of Israel, destroyed their economy. The whole nation was, uh, they were in despair. They were destitute. And Joel says, do you know what that is? That's not a natural disaster. That's what your insurance company would call an act of God. That's uh, the day of the Lord, he says. In the Old Testament, the day of the Lord is any day when God intervenes in human affairs. That's when God has his day. God lets man have his day and rock along and do his own thing and live his own life and, and uh, refuse to give God the time of day. God will let us do that. But sooner or later, God will have his day. He'll, he'll act in judgment. And there are a number of these days of the Lord, so-called, that are sprinkled throughout the Old Testament. And then there is what the prophets look forward to, this great and terrible day of the Lord that's still coming when God will once for all enter into human affairs and, affairs and set everything right when he, when he comes again. That's the final and ultimate day of the Lord. But there are a number of days of the Lord along the way. And Joel says, that's what this is. That's a day of the Lord. God is acting in judgment. Do you get the message? And... Fortunately for Israel, at this point, they got it. They, they, they repented. They, they realized what they had done. They had turned their backs on God and, and walked away. And so Joel prophesies, all right, all right, now that you've, you've learned the lesson, God is going to pour out upon you the early and the latter rains. In other words, the rains will return, the drought will be abated, your crops will grow, you'll be restored again to a productive uh, people, your economy will turn around. God is going to set things right. And after this, he said, that is, after these material blessings, after he re restores your harvest, your crops, after this I will pour out my Spirit upon all flesh. And that's where Peter begins his quotation in verse 16. This is what was spoken of through the prophet Joel. And it shall be in the last days. And here Peter changes the quotation slightly, both from the, the, the Hebrew text and from the Greek translation of the Hebrew text. Joel just says, after this, that is, after God restores your, your, your economy, at some future point after this, I will pour out my spirit upon all mankind, and your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, and your young men shall see visions, and your old men shall dream dreams. Even upon my bondservants, both men and women, I will in those days pour forth of my spirit, and they shall prophesy. Now, if you notice, if you have a New American Standard, the line, and they shall prophesy, is not in caps. In other words, it's not a quotation from Joel. Peter inserted that line, and that's what makes it significant. And they shall prophesy. And I will grant wonders in the sky above and signs in the earth beneath, blood and fire and vapor of smoke. The sun shall be turned into darkness and the moon into blood before the great and glorious day of the Lord shall come, and it shall be that everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Now, a number of things to note in this quotation. The first is the phrase, in the last days. Has anyone asked you lately if we're in the last days? Uh, yes, they have. And normally what, they, uh, what they're thinking is some far-off, prophetic period that immediately precedes the coming of Christ. Is that what comes to mind when you think of the last days? 
Well, actually, the last days began when our Lord Jesus came. That, that phrase, the last days, was a term that the Jews of, of the Old Testament era, just before Jesus came, and uh, the, the period of the apostles, that phrase was used to describe the Messianic era. That is, the time when Messiah would come to Israel. And the apostles use it that way in the, in the New Testament. Hebrews 1, for example, begins, God who spoke to us in various ways through the prophets has in these last days spoken unto us in the Son. And uh, Paul refers to those of us upon whom the ends of the age have come. He was talking about his, his contemporaries of the first century and us. So the last days is not some far-off, era. It is now. We are living in the last days, and that's what makes sense out of this prophecy. Joel says, look, the, it was predicted that in the last days God would pour out his Spirit upon all flesh, and certain things would, would happen. This blessing would be upon all mankind. Your sons and daughters shall prophesy your old men, your young men shall see visions, and your old men shall dream dreams. Even upon my bond slaves, both men and women, will I pour out in those days of my spirit. And then the, the point of it all is verse 21. It shall be that everyone, everyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. What does Joel promise? Well, there's a time coming when God is going to pour out his spirit on everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord without distinction. It doesn't matter whether he is Jew or Gentile or what class or what sex. doesn't matter. He's going to pour it out upon all flesh. In other words, God is going to indwell all humanity, all who call upon him. That's the only proviso. That's all we have to do. If we call upon the name of the Lord, he'll come and indwell our humanity. And the result, according to Joel, is that we will shake the world. That's what these strange words in verses 19 and 20 mean. I will grant wonders in the sky above and signs on the earth beneath, blood and fire and vapor of smoke. The sun shall be turned into darkness and the moon into blood before the great and glorious day of the Lord shall come. Now, we read those words and we think, second coming. That must be the second coming. When the Lord comes back, and there will be these uh, cosmic disturbances that are predicted, but that's not what Joel is talking about. We sometimes forget that the, both the Old and New Testament are Eastern books. They come out of an Oriental background. Uh, we Westerners are used to uh, precise technical definitions of things. That's the way we're, we're trained. Everything is cause and effect and logical and reasonable, and we ka-chunk, ka-chunk, ka-chunk. That's the way we think. And that's the way our histories are written. They're very precise in detail. But we forget that these were Orientals. These were Easterners. And they looked at life differently. They had a different perspective. And our question is always, what was the intent of the author? What did he have in mind when he wrote? Did he really mean that the sun was going to get, become dark and the sky, stars would fall out of the sky? No, he didn't. Because this particular sort of description occurs elsewhere in the Bible and outside of the Bible of historic events in the past. And we know that when those events took place, the sun did not fall out of the sky. It's still there. It came up this morning. I saw it. For example, in Isaiah 13, 1310, if you want to look at it at some later time, Isaiah predicts the fall of Babylon. 
And he says, when Babylon falls, the uh, sun will grow dark, the moon will not give her light, the constellations will fade. And that didn't happen when Babylon fell. Babylon fell in the, in the 6th century B.C., 539, when Cyrus and his Persian hordes came through Babylon. And the city fell, and the sun did not fall out of the sky. But Isaiah said that's what will happen. Now, what these prophets are talking about is not actual cosmic disturbance, but the shaking of everything that man thinks is stable and reliable. The, the Babylonian Empire was perhaps the most permanent thing on the face of the earth at that time. No one thought Babylon would fall in the 8th century when Isaiah predicted that it would. But in the 6th century it fell, less than 200 years later. And there was a great shaking of the foundations, and it was as though men's lives just fell apart. Everything that they relied upon, all the great uh, legal and educational institutions collapsed. Everything fell apart. And Isaiah says that's, that's the way it will be, and that's what Joel was talking about. When men and women permit their humanity to be indwelt by the Spirit of God, they will literally shake the world. And that's exactly what happened. These were the people of whom the early, early non-Christians said they have turned the world upside down. This little group of 120 went out and multiplied themselves many times over, and they shook the Roman Empire. It wasn't long before Rome herself collapsed. Slavery as an institution died. Judaism as a, as a religion collapsed after the temple was was destroyed in 70 A.D., at least as an effective force in, in Palestine. And these early Christians went all over the world. Within one generation, they had essentially evangelized the Roman world. They had gone to all the major metropolitan areas. By 100 A.D., they had gone to the extreme uh, corners, the, uh, the boundaries of the Roman Empire. They shook the world because they permitted God to indwell their humanity and fill them and flood them and use them for his purposes. Now, there are a couple of things I want to observe about this passage. One is that we need to distinguish between the reality and the symbol. There are a number of symbols that are used. The first is wind, the second is fire, and the third is the languages. The reality is the filling of the Spirit. These others are simply symbolic. The wind that blew through the house was a symbol of the coming of the Spirit. You could not see the Spirit. He's invisible. And so uh, the Lord, in his wisdom, arranged a, a sort of audio-visual aid to faith so they could actually see what was happening and hear what was going on. The wind throughout both the Old and New Testament is symbolic of, of the Spirit, the Holy Spirit, Jesus said, of the Spirit. The wind blows where it will, and you hear the sound of it, but you don't know where it came from or where it's going. So it is of everyone who is born of the Spirit. So uh, this is a very apt symbol of the power of the Spirit of God, unseen, quiet at times, but yet powerful, moving things and moving people in unexplainable ways. And secondly, there is a symbol of fire, which throughout the Old Testament is a picture of the presence of God. Remember the tabernacle in the Old Testament and the flame over the, uh, uh, over the tabernacle, over the Ark of the Covenant? The 
pillar of fire as it was by night, and it appeared as smoke during the day, but it was a symbol of the presence of God. Now, what happened in the upper room is that every person in that room had his own Shekinah, his own pillar of fire. It came into the room as one, uh, one flame, and it subdivided, and every person in that room had his own Shekinah as a picture that God now is not indwelling a tent, a skin tent. He wasn't indwelling the temple. And as a very vivid illustration of that fact, within 40 years the temple was destroyed by the Romans. He was indwelling people. We are the temple of God today. And in the tongues, the proclamation of the gospel in all the languages, the known languages of the Roman world, was an illustration of the impact of that filling upon the early church. They were to go throughout the whole world and preach the gospel to everyone in every language. Simply an illustration of Acts 1.8. You're to be my witnesses in Jerusalem, that's where it began, Judea and Samaria, and to, the, and to the uttermost part of the earth. What better illustration can you imagine of that truth? That they, w they went out speaking in the, in the known languages of their world as a type or as a symbol of their proclamation of the gospel to the furthest reaches of the Roman Empire. I want to say two things. So we need to reassess our view of tongues. I, I have no uh, interest whatever in uh, saying anything, uh, uh, expressing any sort of intolerance or lack of love toward people that are in, in the charismatic movement. They are Christians. They are believers. They are brothers in Christ. And we must not exclude them, and we must not separate ourselves from them. They are a part of our body. And uh, Paul makes it very clear that, that we need them just as much as, as they need us. We can't do without them, as they can't do without us. So uh, we must not, uh, must not turn our backs on them or reject them. We need to accept them. But I think we need to assess the, uh, the phenomenon, the so-called phenomenon, phenomenon of tongues today in the light of the scriptural standards, the biblical standards. Is it a known foreign language, for example, capable of being a, uh, taught or approached through normal rules of grammar and syntax? And secondly, does it involve the proclamation of the gospel to unbelievers? Normally, the, the gift, as it's described today, is used in worship. It's for the believer. And it seems to me, both here in Acts 2 and in 1 Corinthians 14, where the, the same experience, that of speaking in tongues, is described, the same two criteria show up. It is a known foreign language, and uh, it is for unbelievers. Paul makes that very clear. It is a sign to unbelievers. I don't think we can say that the gift of tongues has ceased once for all. The Scripture doesn't teach that. We can't be sure. But where it does occur, I think we have to apply these criteria. Is it a known foreign language? And was it used as a sign to unbelievers that the gospel now was being proclaimed to the whole world? I want to say again, we need to love and accept our charismatic brothers, but we need to realistically apply these, what I think are the biblical criteria, to the gift of tongues. Now, the second thing that I want to say, and this is by far the most important, is that the point of Joel's prophecy and Peter's application of it is that God will inhabit any old body, and he will use us to shake the world. 
Uh, it seems to me that the point of the story of the burning bush in Moses' commission is that God will use any old bush. And uh, here, it, it, I think the point is, is very clear. He'll use anybody. Anybody. It doesn't make any difference how, you know, what shape you're in, how tall you are, what your color is, what your educational background is, what your economic status is. It doesn't matter. He just wants to indwell your humanity. No one's too young. Um, he says your young men will uh, see visions. Uh, you're never too young to be used of God, to shape your high school campus or your junior high campus. We have to remember that the apostles were all quite young, some of them in their teenagers probably. The Lord himself was barely 30 when he went to the cross, or perhaps 31, about the age of Terry Pope. It's remarkable when you think about it. Uh, the older I get, the younger that seems. But uh, <laughs> you're never too young. We have a way of looking at ourselves and saying, well, you know, what can I do? What impact can I have on the world? I'll wait till I get whatever education I have to get and get settled down in whatever career I'm uh, moving toward. Then I'll be used of God. Nonsense. Make yourself available to God now. There are any number of high school kids who are having a tremendous impact upon their high school because they made themselves available to God. And you're never too old. Uh, Joel says, your old men will dream dreams. Now, I know in context he's talking about prophetic dreams, revelation that comes through dreams, but if I can uh, slightly misuse the, the text, may I say that, that you can dream again. I, the older you get, it seems like the more of your dreams are taken away from you. But never stop dreaming. You're never too old to be used of God. The world is full of lonely, miserable, empty people who need what you have, who need to hear the gospel, who need to, to know that there, there's power for living life as we've always longed to, to live it in Christ. Uh, for myself, I don't think we ever ought to retire. Uh, you may want to retire from your present vocation. There's certainly nothing wrong with that. But we should never retire from our battle against the forces of darkness. Never. You know what happens to you if you do? You go off to your, your cabin that you've been building all of your life, and, and you're going to spend the rest of your life fishing and hunting and enjoying the things you couldn't do while you were working. And, and you know what will happen? You'll just die. That's, that's just self-indulgence. And self-indulgence will kill you. It always kills you. You just die. And if you don't, your mate will wish you would. You just get so mean and irascible and ornery and hard to live with. Nobody can stand you. Just fling your life away. My goodness. You have all that time and probably have some financial resources that can be used to good, to good effort. Put yourself at God's disposal. Make yourself available to him. Be filled and flooded with his presence and, and shake your world, whatever it is. And this passage makes it very clear. It doesn't make any difference what your, what your gender is, male, female. Uh, women in those days were largely overlooked, but Joel reminds us that uh, it's, it's not true. Women have a tremendous place, a strategic place in God's order of things. They weren't behind the door when the gifts were passed out. Uh, there, there's, there's a world to be gained. I, it occurred to me the other day in reading through 2 Timothy 2, too. I'd never noticed this before. 
That's a well-known passage. The things Paul says that you have received from me, the same pass on to faithful men, we translate, who will be able to teach others also. But the word there is translated men. It's not the word for man, uh, the gender, man, the male. It's the word anthropos, which is the generic word for mankind. And it could just as well have been translated, pass on to faithful men and women who will be able to teach others also. And here we are at the beginning of a summer, and, and things are a little more relaxed, and we're all thinking, well, I think I'll just kick back and, and indulge myself this summer, and I'll get back to discipling people and being useful next winter. But, you know, if you do that, it'll be the most miserable summer of your life. The more you indulge yourself, I find, the more I want. And you never are fulfilled or happy. Start asking God to give you someone to minister to this summer, some other woman on the block or your neighborhood or friend or some other man in your office. And start praying for that person and working with them. If they're not Christians, reach out to them in love and share the gospel with them. And if they are believers, start helping them to grow. And you can have an impact upon that person, and literally you can shake the world. I'm told uh, that Dwight L. Moody was walking the streets of Chicago one day, and, and he uh, remembered a statement that someone had once made to him. There is no end to the good that one can do. Uh, if you're a man who's willing to be fully filled and flooded with God. And Moody stopped in his tracks and he prayed, God, make me that man. At that time, he was a nobody. And look what God accomplished through him. And perhaps in our uh, view of things, what you and I do may not be very significant, but in terms of, of eternity, we can shake the world, just like Dwight L. Moody did. So make your... Make your body available. doesn't matter how tall or how wide or how skinny or, or what it looks like. doesn't matter. God just wants a body that's available to him to be filled and flooded for his use. Let's stand together. We'll be dismissed. <clears throat> Gracious Father, thank you for giving us this, this opportunity. What a, what a marvelous thing it is that you have designed things so that we can be used and be a part of your redemptive program. Forgive us, Lord, for frittering away our time and indulging ourselves, thinking about our own discomfort and our own problems, and centering on ourselves and our needs. Deliver us, Lord. We know how unhappy and miserable we get when we focus on ourselves. Help us to look to you and look around us and to make ourselves available to be filled with your life, to be changed as men and women, and to be made available uh, to, to be used as you see fit. Use us this summer, Lord, to draw men and women, boys and girls, to yourself. And uh, use us to shake our neighborhood, our world, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.